0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Oh yeah, you know it. That gem, Don't Stop Believing" by Journey, is the single most important philosophical statement of the past 50 years. Think about it. Would the iPhone even exist if Steve Jobs stopped believing in Apple? Hyundai would still be a punchline if the Koreans stopped believing. And where would my next guest, Matt Paxton, be now if he stopped believing in 1999? When $40,000 in debt to a bookie, he was beaten up in a ditch outside a casino. He seriously considered ending it all. But he didn't. Resilience in the face of failure. Bending, but not breaking. Coming back. Paying anything to roll the dice just one more time. That and so much more coming up. But first, the news. Full disclosure, thanks for joining us. We are here today with Matt Paxton, the face of Clutter Cleaners, which is the cleaning company that you see in the hit show Hoarders, which is now Lifetime Network, and a friend of mine with the most Forrest Gump bio you've ever seen. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. So I teased this at the very top, talking about that uh, uh, that moment of uh, doubt, that inflection point, do or die, where you were $40,000 in debt to a bookie and had 24 hours to come up with that kind of money in 1999, and everything fell apart. Can you take us back to that moment?
1: Yeah. I had, um, you know, went to college. Became an economist, Federal Reserve, didn't like that, didn't like the whole cube thing, and then uh, became an economist, very low-level economist for Caesar's Palace, thinking that would be cool, and also didn't like the cube thing, and found the other things to do in Vegas and Tahoe at night, and quickly fell deep into the gambling and the drinking.
0: Were you like Matt Damon and Rounders?
1: Uh, Not as good looking, but yeah, pretty close. It got, um, you know, the problem is, I was educated, had a great degree, and so I thought, I was Matt Damon from Rounders. But the reality is I was a low-level analyst <laughs> that really didn't know what he was doing and was totally sucked in. And before I knew it, I'd, within four months, I owed forty grand to a bookie.
0: Did you already have a gambling habit before you, you went to the casino over there? I mean, what, what did you play? I've always had what addiction.
1: Your... Yeah, I've always had addiction. Uh, in college, we went up to Atlantic City. A couple of my buddies taught me to gamble. So I'd, I really got a high off of uh, blackjack and craps and loved it. Absolutely loved it. Had a blast doing it. And, it, and it, I mean, I've always I'll always be an addict. I'm just addicted to different things. At that point in my life, it was gambling.
0: How, how do you where do you trace this addiction back to? I mean, you talk about how important your father was to your life. Your yeah. father passed away more than a decade ago.
1: My dad, uh, superstar entrepreneur, uh, you know, watched him from a very young age. Um, definitely, addictions coming from him. Uh, both learned and genetic. Um, spent a lot of time in therapy. <laughs> I'll tell you, for me. I'm a very obviously a reality TV star. I'm a very needy person. It kind of comes with the the layout there, and I'm i com- I'm at peace with it now. I've learned. I've had to kind of just
0: refocus it into positive things. So how did this happen? What was your what was your pay for Caesar's? I mean, you were so this I'm, is a prestigious job. You were an economist with the Federal Reserve here in Richmond and maybe it got to your head that you 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 could game the system or you could count cards? How did it work?
1: Yeah, well, I was also 22, so I was an idiot. I mean, I thought I knew everything. I was an educated 22-year-old kid that had a perfect job coming out of college, and I thought I could take on the world. And I think that uh, naivety and that ignorance is important at that age because if I knew the truth that I know now at 40, I wouldn't have done all the work to get where I am. But I was so dumb and just so thought I could take on the world. So I said, I'm going to, I'm going to go take on the world and I'm going to go
0: to Vegas. Did you bet your earnings? I mean, what were you Oh yeah, I was betting bet over.
1: It. I was betting over. I mean, I would literally, I was gambling about 500 bucks a night, but I was only making 40 grand a year. So I, I had
0: gone through my entire salary in four months. So how did this happen? Your um altercation with the bookie? Is it, is it like a Teddy KGB moment in Rounders? paid that man his money?
1: He basically says, Hey man, you owe me the money. It's time. He calls the loan. And I said, I oh, only got a thousand bucks because I'd gotten paid and that's all I had. And he goes, No worries, man. Come on down. We'll figure it out. And I remember driving down the mountain. I was living at the top of uh, in Tahoe, at the top at Heavenly. I was <laughs> probably
0: thinking, well, what, a, what an open minded book. I guy literally
1: I said, Wow, it's not like the movies at all. <laughs> this is so easy. I'm, we're we're going to work out a payment plan and everything will be great. And I thought, I mean, I was. What is it, Montgomery Ward? A payment yeah, plan? Yeah, I thought it was just, Oh, it's going to work out and it'll be great. What a nice guy. How and much, much could, were you in debt uh, to him? 40 grand. And what we didn't, what we haven't expressed is I ran the customer database for all of Caesar's Palace. And so I had all the data point about 300 data points on all the gamblers from contact information to salaries to what they played. I mean, I had everything. And so I was dumb to think it wasn't about my 40 grand. He wanted that list. And so when I said, hey, man, I don't have the money, he gave me, he said, your option is give me that list or I'm going to beat the crap out of you. And I quickly realized, uh-oh, that was a minute. Wait, like, this was in a parking lot? Yeah, parking lot of the uh, the parking lot of Caesar's Palace, and I realized like, oh wait a minute, this is really bad. I didn't know how bad it was until that minute because I thought it was separate from my job, and then once and I knew I would go to jail. I mean, I had my security; it was harder to get my security clearance for Caesar's than it was for the Federal Reserve. And so once I realized, oh wait a minute, this is about the data. This is 1999. This is pre-boom, and data was and people were just figuring it out. And it was like, oh, this has nothing to do with my forty grand. It is all to do, and I'm I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. And so I, I took the beating. And I said, like, you know, obviously, I, said, I don't have, I lied. I was like, I don't have access to it. I can't do that. But very quickly, I realized this is going to go downhill fast.
0: There was a moment beforehand, there was an epiphany, surely, where you're like, wow, I make $40,000 a year and I owe this guy $40,000 a year. You weren't worried. You figured you'd just win it? I, I, even, it even at that point, I
1: believed I would still get out of this on my own. I, I was dumb enough to think I'll just have a really good run tonight on poker. It's time. I'm due. I deserve this, That my favorite, dumbest thing in the world. I deserve to get out of this. Pray, you know, did the whole, all right, God, if you do this, I'll go to church the rest of my life. Help me out here. And um, just was really naive. And yeah, I mean, when you, when you spreadsheet it now, I'm gambling 40 and I only make 40 and I'm only four months in. The math doesn't really work out. So what did you do? I called my mom and she said, You're on your own. And uh, that was very humbling. And to realize that I got to figure this out and that got really serious. And then the, the night is when it really went down. I had I, the guy basically gave me a week to come up with the money. He said he, you know the grand I gave him he was like this is your juice it buys you a week you still owe me 40 grand. So it didn't even knock into the debt. It just bought me time. Oh jeez. Yeah. And I, I mean I, I couldn't make that. And so the question was okay, how do I come up with 40 grand? And that was the the humbling moment because the options you put on the table to make 40 grand in a week uh, none of them are legal and none of them are morally good. And it's a very humbling, and, and one of the options is end it. I mean, I absolutely thought, okay, well, I'm killing myself might be one of the best options, and that was like, wait a minute, dude, what what are you doing? Because you know you only put that on the table for about five minutes, but it really, the 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 minute you cross that threshold and you let that be an option in your life, your life changes, and and then it allows, okay, well, the things I am going to do for the money for forty grand, I'll do anything, man, and I mean anything, and it was it was
0: very scary, very humbling. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're having a frank conversation with Matt Paxton, uh, founder of Clutter Cleaners, which you'd recognize on the hit show Hoarders. Uh, Matt goes around and helps people who stockpile things in their house, everything from old books to Betamax tapes to cats. He's he's hauled something like 50 cats and all manner of bodily fluids out of various different homes. And fast forward to that. How did that happen? I mean, we talk about debt metaphorically in debt, literally the debt you owed to the bookie, the debt you owed to the banks. Ever since I met you in our, our kids' preschool class a couple of years ago, you always wondered aloud about this sort of Damocles and debt is constantly hanging over your head. And you recently told me now with your newfound discipline and uh, fame and the job that you have that you finally were able to discharge this debt. So this is a 15-year odyssey. How did this happen? Yeah. I mean, slowly but surely. I had that debt uh, with the bookies,
1: Worked a couple years to pay that off, and then I had the worst debt, which was a credit card debt. I'll take a bookie debt over credit card debt any day.
0: When did you start taking credit card debt?
1: While I was paying off the bookie to start new businesses. So uh-huh. did the bookie ultimately give you an installment plan? I had a friend that bailed me out. He paid the bookie, got rid of that, and then I owed my friend. It was an installment payment to him. Wow.
0: Yeah. But transitively, you owed the credit card company's high-interest debt?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was you know old credit cards from college, 22%. And I was maxing them out. So, I mean, I was, you know, my minimum payments were getting up to, you know, 2000 a month. So I was working just to keep my debt at full.
0: So you end up back in central Virginia. And when was the first time you cleaned a house or when did this become a commercial enterprise for well, you?
1: Well, my dad died pretty quickly after coming home. And uh, that was a major loss to me. And I started cleaning his house. And then my grandparents died. And uh, my father-in-law, my stepfather also died. And so... Losing a bunch of guys, I had a couple houses to clean. And at that point, I still wasn't a business yet. It was just an idea. And uh, I went through two other businesses that failed. uh, And I had run up credit card debts running those businesses. And then I finally, I was really at rock bottom. And I was like, what am I going to do? And I remembered my dad always said was, if something sucks, make it a business because nobody else wants to do it.
0: So I started cleaning old ladies' houses. So you were still rolling over debt with even more debt, even though you got got hammered several times from college uh, with your predicament at Caesars Palace. You still took on debt. To try to extinguish debt. Well, yeah, twenty, you know, mid twenties,
1: no real salary, no, no. Assets. Did you ever wonder
0: why these companies would keep extending debt? I to you? could
1: not understand. I had it at one point. I had sixty thousand uh, open balance, opportunity to spend up to sixty grand on credit cards, and that blew my mind because I was making, you know, ten, fifteen. I mean, I remember on my little social security statement they send. I remember one year I made eight grand for the whole year. And I was like, man, and I was gambling full time, so that was most of my real earnings were cash. But the reality of like, how can I make less than I'm allowed to spend on my credit card? And this was the early 2000s, and mm-hmm. people were just throwing out debt left and right. And so I was like, well, whatever. I'll, and I still same belief as gambling; I'll eventually hit it big and pay it off. So I didn't worry, and I was I was too dumb to really know what that what that 22 would really do to me over time. I mean, in hindsight. I did work for ten years to pay it off, and I'm proud of it. I spent that money. I felt like I was obligated to pay it. If I had declared bankruptcy, it would have been easier for me now as an adult at forty, because mm. I would have at least gotten out of it in eight years. Well, it took me ten years to pay it off. I don't know that my credit will ever. So it was a form of indentured servitude. Absolutely, I'm telling
0: you, the debt to my bookie was better than the debt to the banks. Well. Wow. Um, and that is an amazing story, in light of the fact that where you were at this kind of rarefied position at the Federal Reserve Bank, and kind of at, at its at its base, the way you were knocked down, you were you were cleaning up houses, cleaning up crime scenes. We cleaned up. We actually cleaned up foreclosures for banks for two years. Wow! And so you saw you saw the best and the worst, and you kind of plumbed the depths of of misery and abandonment.
1: Yeah, I think my failures. You know, I always say my failures are my assets. I mean, that's really I've, I've failed better than anybody. And that's a mindset you have to get into. But once I started cleaning up foreclosures, once I started cleaning up crime scenes, you really get to the point where like, okay, all this failure has to make sense and it's going to make me better at this, this one job.
0: And therein lies the rub. Full disclosure, stick with us. We're going to be back with Matt Paxton and another person who we gave a great opportunity to who has a unique story about bending but not breaking.
1: Support for this program was provided by the Martin Agency. Headquartered in Richmond, Virginia, the Martin Agency has consistently been ranked among the top advertising firms by national media and industry leaders alike.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for joining us. We are here today with Matt Paxton of Clutter Cleaner, who you recognize from the show Hoarders, as well as a recent employee of his, Ronnie Fry, who he hired just a couple of months after a two-decade prison sentence. Ronnie, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, I want to get uh, your story. I mean, you went to prison uh, for 20 years. What was it like going in? How old were you when you went in? And if you could tell us about the experience there, the the the, the difficulty of it. You said you grew up in Maryland?
2: Yes. Grew up in Maryland. Moved here when I was 12, 13 years old. And um, the experience was humbling. I mean, it was, it, was, it was rough, but at the same time, it was humbling.
0: So, what was it like? Where did they send you? What was that first day on the inside like?
2: Well, the first day they send you to receiving, and, and then you stay and in receiving like ninety days. They do the inventory on you. You get you a state number, and then they send you to the, the record of prison. I went to the first prison I went to was Southampton um, Correctional Center, and I stayed there for five years.
0: And how old were you when you went in?
2: Eighteen years old. Eighteen years yeah. old. My, I, was, I was 18 for 10 days before I went to prison.
0: How scared were you when you went in? What was going on through your head?
2: Oh, I was very scared. I was, you know, I was a young kid, and there were grown men. So it was, it, was, it was very scary.
0: So here we talk about paying debts. Matt had to pay a debt to the bookie, had to pay a bet, various debts to the credit card companies. You here had to pay a debt to society. Yeah. And um, what was the hope for you on the inside?
2: my hope was doing my time and getting out you know safely that's about it getting out safely and learning all i can learn while i was in there to get out you know and be productive do you remember when you went in specifically what year 1991. so
0: 1991 and you came out when
2: 2011.
0: what was it like when you came out i just want i've always <laughs> wanted to ask what was that experience like either on the ride home or were you in a halfway house you look around, and the cars obviously look very different. Yeah. People have cell phones that you never imagined. I mean, what was the first time, like, you handled a smartphone?
2: I was lost. I didn't I didn't know how to get on it. I didn't know how to dial the number, <laughs> anything. new? I seen all type of new cars. There's a lot of stuff. The world has got faster.
0: Was there something that you did that you said that, listen, when this happens, and I count down the days and I got out, was there something that you wanted to eat, something that you wanted to do, a ritual of kind of—
2: Actually, I went to Captain D's for seafood. Yeah, I wanted I wanted seafood when I got out, so I went to Captain D's and then went shopping. And what was the learning curve like? Like you suddenly said, well, did you did you get
0: to use email and the internet and the World Wide Web on the inside, or did you? No, they didn't let they you don't. use Corelinks or any of those no, other. They,
2: when I when I was then, they didn't have access to that type of stuff.
0: So you only got to read about these things in the newspaper and and, and the kind of world happening on the outside. September 11 happens. You know, you had to kind of put yeah. those. Those. I know. was
2: basically looking at it on TV when it happened. That's how we get all that information, either through magazines or, or TV.
0: So you had to put your life together, and now you had, you were branded as an ex-con. How did you cross paths with Matt?
2: Um, My sister. My sister, she's a known social worker here in, in, in the Richmond area, and him and my sister are good friends. I was getting out in two weeks, and she asked him if he could give me a job, and he told me he would give me a job, so I came and worked for him.
1: Talk about another debt. I mean, yeah. this is a sister that had, she had helped me professionally for eight years, and when he came out, she said, I need you to do one favor. I need you to give him one day of work, one day. If he does well, he's on his
0: own. If he doesn't, you can get rid of him, but that was another debt from me to her. Well, Ronnie, how did you, how did you f- get your sea legs? How did you normalize? You just knew coming out that you had to make a living. Who were you crashing with? What was your plan? You just knew that you needed a chance to, to do what?
2: I, just need, I, I knew I needed a chance to, for somebody just to take their chance on me. And, you know, that's all I needed. I knew I could make it if somebody would believe in me and, um, and just give me one chance. And were you
0: staying with your sister?
2: Yeah, I was staying with my sister. Yep, and, and was going to work from her house.
0: Have you, you'd sufficiently done the time that you swore off crime, it was not a possibility for you to get involved or to risk anything again?
2: Oh, no, sir. No. That's, I, I would never go back to that place. <laughs> was there one specific moment or
0: something that happened oh, that. that that made you say that I am resolved, I've made my peace with this, that I'm going to be on the straight and narrow, as difficult as it would be? I think when I lost
2: my aunt. Yeah. When did you lose your aunt? Um, I think it was two thousand six. I lost her, and well, I lost I lost several, several family members while I was incarcerated. So that you know, and you were not allowed to go. You were not allowed me. to
0: go to funerals. No, sir.
2: No. You're what was it
0: specifically go. about your aunt that made you?
2: She was my favorite aunt. You know, she took care of me when I was small. You know, taught me a lot of things. You know, kept me on the right path, and you know, taught me right from wrong.
0: So by 2006, you have, I have five years and you counted down the days. Did you Did you uh, try to educate yourself on the inside? Did you try to see a new way of, of reading about things or thinking about what you would do when you got out?
2: Yeah, I was thinking about, I was basically thinking about what I was going to do, while, you know, when I get out. You know, while I was in, I got my GED, um, custodial maintenance trade. Um, I got several more trades while I was in, like five trades I got while I was in.
0: Tell us, tell the listener what it's like for a person who did his time to come out and um, get a job legitimately.
2: What are the obstacles yeah. that you face? <laughs> I mean, being a felon is, is, is hard, man. I mean, you know, you, you're only going to be able to work in factories or, you know, something like that. I mean, as far as, you know, getting a le- real legit job, it, it's hard. It's real hard.
0: What, I mean, would you, would you have to depend on Medicaid, for example? You have to pay the rent, and you just need any sort of job where you could do the lifting? or you work with a foreman or someone who would, who would not ask you so much about your past?
2: Yeah, you have to work with, you no know, basically small businesses. You know, you try to work for a big company or something like that, you know, they really don't. Once they look at your background, they're not going to hire you.
0: Matt, how much did it resound with you, his story, one, in in, in your debt to his sister, but two, that you got a second chance, as messy as it was, and how you were still on the rebound and you were still in a fragile state. You were still in heavy debt to various financial institutions, but you wanted to take a chance or some would say take a risk on Ronnie Fry.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I knew for what I did, um, I'm a small business owner and I can't pay the labor that I really needed. So I needed someone that was going to stick with me for a long time. And I knew he was going to work really hard. And my hunch was some dude that's done 20 years, well, I knew he had no other options. I mean, I knew. And, and Ronnie's being nice about saying what his options were. I mean, you, you get sl- your door slammed in your face. I, thought, I, I had no record, and I got my, my door slammed in my face multiple times. So my hunch was he's not going to quit, and he's going to hustle at any level. And so that's why I jumped with it. But, yeah, it was also a second chance. Um, what we weren't prepared for was how well Ronnie and other ex-cons would do with our clients. So
0: you two are brothers in debt, effectively.
1: Absolutely. And fast forward five years later, it's hard for me to hang out with people that haven't either
0: failed really big or haven't done some time. So, Ronnie, when did you feel like you were finally a functioning employee? Or that you feel like you didn't have to look behind your back, that you guys established a rapport together? Because we're going to get into the fact that you've now started your own business. Yeah. Matt is, has moved on. He's cleaning fewer homes. You see him more on reality television. He's a massive ego, massive yeah. personality. <laughs> hey, come on. The preschool teacher, you know, she wants your autograph. I, I'm lucky if I see you twice a year. And that's great. That's great. But uh, there's an opportunity here for Ronnie to pick up. How did that work out?
2: I think I'm, I'm pretty good. You know, where I come from, I'm pretty good with freaking people out. You know, and... The first day I met this guy, you know, the first job I got, you know, we met on Pan Top Mountain, and when I shook his hand, I knew that he was a good person. It's just the energy he gave off; I knew that he was, a, you know, a good man.
0: You didn't say anything and, to the to the effect of "Listen, don't screw me." You didn't have to do that. Was there body language, or did you know that he was Ronnie was in a position that he had to?
1: Well, I had his record. I had the full record, and I said to him, "I need to know the whole story, the real story." And in my mind, if it, if it wavered even 1%, if he lied to me, I was done. And he told me word for word, some pretty awful stories, but he told me the truth. And I said, well, he's at rock bottom. I know personally, look, getting your butt kicked by a bookie and having to now figure out what to do with your life. I've been there. I knew that. And that conversation he and I had was, was pretty bad for him to say it, but he was totally honest. He looked me in the eye. He shook my hand and he took full 100%. He said, yep, I did all this. And I knew he was sober. So at that point I said, okay, he's sober and he's taking 100%. Uh, he, he knows it's him. And so he, he went with it. And I was, at that point I said, okay, I'm going to give him a shot.
0: Uh, did you, uh, Ronnie, did you have somebody from the prison system, maybe either a probation officer or a release officer constantly on your case or auditing you or were you effectively on your own?
2: Oh, no, I have a, I'm on parole and probation right now. And, um, but my parole officer, she's she's pretty lean because, you know, I basically do what I'm supposed to do. You know, I I work every day, you know, I pay my fines off and, and I know I don't meet any meetings. I haven't failed any, you know, drug analysis or anything like that. So she's pretty lenient with me.
0: Can you tell us how this has affected your confidence or when, like, again, when did you feel, was there a moment you were on an assignment or that you, you kind of said, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm back to being a member of society. I don't have to look behind my shoulder again.
2: To be honest, sometimes I still feel a little, you know. A little uncomfortable. I still look over my shoulder sometimes, you know. It's, it's not, you know, it's it's a slow process.
0: I mean, people have you in their homes, in their businesses. True. And you're there interacting with them. You got the second chance. And now you're parlaying all this into... Spinning off your own business, and you talk about the, the terror of it off, off microphone early on. You're saying how nervous you've been, how sleepless the nights have been as a, as a small business owner, that you have to pay people, that you have to hustle to get jobs. You, you very nearly had to take a job this morning, and we were lucky to have you on set. But um, now you own it. Exactly. What is that like?
2: I mean, it's a wonderful feeling. It's just, you know, just getting, getting the jobs you know, and getting, trying to get loans and, and things of that nature. It's almost impossible for me. You
0: know, How so? Any... I mean, walk us through that. Is it is, is, you, you have trouble getting insurance or bonding?
2: Yes, I have for the business. I, I have a, I have trouble getting all of that, you know. And um you no, know, just getting messing with banks and stuff like that is it's just hard. They they won't give me a loan. They want um you no, know, they want to give me all these credit cards which I don't want to deal with, you know, so I mean, it's rough.
1: Well, welcome to my world, and that's what I love about this. I mean, Ronnie and I are really are brothers now because <laughs> the problems he's having are payroll, insurance, yeah. labor, same problems I have. How do I, make, how do I make rent? What do I have to sell of my own to keep this business alive? He's got real-world problems the same as I do, small business problems,
0: but and I an, love that. You know, it's an evergreen chicken or egg complaint about banks, especially in the post-bailout period, that uh, people who are creditworthy – uh, can't get loans and those who want to become credit worthy in your case you want to show that you can put in the sweat equity that you you have a track record that you're dependable you you have this terrible bind where either you're getting uh, you know loan shark money or mm-hmm. a credit card 25% interest money being thrown at you or, or no reasonable money at all so what are your other options for working capital
2: It's a good question just, just the hustle you got the hustle you know
0: so do you have an employee now yes I do uh, what is your what is your mo like you What is your ideal job right now You get uh, you know somebody's moving out or there's an estate sale or someone passes away, and you will show up and organize and clean the facility.
2: Yeah, that's that's basically how I do it. Um, I used to work with older um, clients, and we do pretty well. We it, we we will send
1: Ronnie jobs that are no longer financially viable for us. Um, I now have had to expand with a big national partner, so we're helping. Families, you know, fifty states around the country now, and we get a lot of local, smaller jobs where it's one or two people for a, a few days, and that's too small for my business now. And so we will hand those to Ronnie, and he goes in and does a really good job uh, on the 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 really hands-on smaller jobs.
0: Ronnie, um, just briefly, what are, what are some of the lessons in this kind of in in uh, you know bending and not breaking? Um, you came out, your spirit wasn't shattered. You found mm-hmm. someone who took a chance on you, and now I get the sense that you you say you wanted to pass that down to other people who. Might not have the best chances. Yes. Uh, for example, you're going to have to scale up and hire other employees. What are you now motivated to do?
2: Basically, do what what Matt passed down to others. What Matt gave me, you know. You know, get hire, hire as many people as I can. For convicted felons, you no know, ex felons, and you no know, things of that nature. And um, you know, just continue to build my brand. Continue to build my business.
0: And where do you want to be in five years? <laughs>
2: I want to be in a better place than I am now (laughs) that's for sure I want to own you know I want my business stable you know I want to be able to have some have money in my savings and in my business you know that's pretty much it
0: full disclosure I'm Robin Farzad we're talking failure redemption the importance of bending and not breaking and never stopping believing stay with us This program
1: is made possible with support from Virginia Commonwealth University. Located in Richmond, Virginia, VCU is a premier public research university focused on academic success.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Today we're talking doubt, introspection, failure, the importance of recovery and paying anything to roll the dice. Just one more time, as Steve Perry so eloquently put it with Journey in 1981. We're joined by Matt Paxton and Ronnie Fry. Uh, You recognize them from Clutter Cleaners, uh, which is part of the hit cable show Hoarders. Matt Paxton has since moved on. Um, He still cleans houses, but he tours the country and trains other people who intervene in cleaning homes for hoarders. And he's passing on a lot of his business to Ronnie Fry here in Richmond. And uh, Ronnie, we wanted to talk about the learning curve of, uh, you know, you could just punch a clock and be working for someone, work for a retailer, work for a warehouse. But you have opted to go the harder route. And starting your own business and taking the responsibility. Isn't it scary kind of looking at this? Like Matt's talking, you know, you, you guys have to learn basics of budgeting together, insurance,
2: payroll, spreadsheets. Walk me through that. You know, I'm just learning all of this stuff, you know. You know, mostly everything that I'm learning that far is budget, you know, how to, you know, do my insurance, how to, you know, rent, all of that stuff. I'm I'm just learning. So, you know, I'm learning from this guy here. You know, we do we do the classes. We start in classes every week now on budgeting. So
0: where do you take your classes?
1: In my cube. <laughs> it's just me and Ronnie, <laughs> and we sit down and we go over our numbers. And I give him homework. And I say, okay, well, what's your? Because I'll ask him, what's your cost? What does it cost you to run your business? Mm-hmm. And I already know he's about about fifty percent off just from what he tells me. And then I write down all the other things that he's not aware of. And it's the same thing other people did to me ten, fifteen years Matt, ago. What?
0: C- let me, cynically speaking. Mm-hmm. Let me let me play uh, devil's advocate here. What's your investment in Ronnie Fryer? Why? Why do you still stay on? You've moved on, right? You you talk screenplays. You talk. You've been approached by other cable companies and showrunners to to parlay what you've done with Hoarders into something bigger. I mean, this is this is the ghost of Matt Paxton past. And um, why why still this this loyalty to an employee who you helped, who after all is on his own feet now?
1: Yeah, real story. Uh, when my dad died, I went to his funeral, and about a thousand people showed up. And there was standing room only. And my dad was my hero, man. I mean, he taught me everything. And it was really sad, him dying. But uh, the funeral turned into a roast. And for three hours, everybody stood up and told these awesome stories about my dad. And they said how great he was. And everyone, oh, your dad gave me my first job. Your dad gave me, you know, gave me a line of credit when he had no money. And I hear all these stories my dad did. And my dad died a drunk, to be honest. I mean, I had to pay for his funeral. But, like, that didn't matter. What I was focused on was all the awesome, amazing differences he made in lives. And that, to me, is really what it's about. I mean, I don't want, I don't want to die and be rich, you know, I want financially. I want, when I die, because there's going to be some bad stories about me when I die. And I want a lot of good stories like Ronnie standing up and saying, hey, man, he gave me my first chance. He gave me my fifth chance. He gave me this, you know, I want Ronnie to stand up with a wife and with kids and say, I wouldn't be here today. If Matt hadn't given me a chance, that's what, that's how I want to go. And that's why I do it. So you're pretty much investing in your funeral roast right now. Yes, pretty much. 100%. (laughs) He's not vain. Uh, You know, I probably think this song is about you. Don't you? I have tried. (laughs) I have tried to be rich as an entrepreneur for 15 years and I always failed. And I can assure you what I learned from doing hoarders and what I've learned from cleaning the messiest homes in the country is once you focus on doing right and doing good and helping people, that's when the money comes. I tried to just get rich and I failed miserably every time. And that's how I got in debt. When I just started helping people and honestly just helped focus on doing good, that's when I started making money. And that's a, that's a belief. That's a mind. I mean, that's a, that's a mindset. That's a total switch of entrepreneurism, but I truly believe it. And I am 100% proof of that. If you focus
0: on others and do good, that's when the money comes. So you're going to see hopefully the long tail of clutter cleaners in five years. And Ronnie Fry has several employees and, he is, he is in a position—you've asked him, essentially, to go and find other people and help them and hope that they go out and help other people, and suddenly it becomes this diaspora of help. What is it about— I like it call a coaching
1: tree. A coaching like you, tree? You look at Bill Belichick, and he's got all these amazing coaches. Coach heard, of the New England Patriots. Yeah, I heard an interview with uh, Dr. Dre last night, believe it or not, and they talked about his coaching tree of rappers. And bear with me on this. Dr. Dre brought Eminem, Snoop Dogg, 50 Cent— um, all these guys. I mean, you go all the way down. Ice Cube. I mean, all these guys. And I want to be that. I want to be a guy that has brought in, in 30 years, I want to know that all these dudes have started really good businesses and actually made a difference
0: based on the stuff I taught them. Are you investing financially in, in Ronnie Fry's business? No, I'm broke. I don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> you just you just, you just discharged your debt. Yeah.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm at zero, man. I'm at zero. I'm a, I always say I want to be a break-even heir. That was my... That was my goal all through the whole time with all this debt. If I could get to zero, I'd be the happiest guy in the world. And I'm at zero and I'm pretty damn happy. I go to bed now and I don't freak out. You know, can I actually eat tomorrow morning? And I remember with two kids, man, I got stuck in Washington, D.C. with not enough gas money to get home. And I had to suck gas out of the lawnmowers in the back of my truck to put gas into my truck to get home to Richmond to get my change drawer to get enough money to fill my gas up. Incidentally, you could have hollered. I would have,
0: you know, yeah, charged I know. down the highway in my Subaru, but... I mean,
1: true story. When Hoarders first aired, my first time I was going to be on TV, uh, my wife was... she just had her first son and uh, I knew my mom. My mom had really struggled with my success. She always wanted me to get a real job and I was thinking I was finally going to make it. I was finally going to do it and I was going to show the world I'm not a loser. I'm not a failure and... Uh, Verizon cut my phone off that morning because I had not paid the bill <laughs> in 90 days. True story. And I begged, I mean begged and begged and begged Verizon. I said, I'm going to be on TV tonight. This is my business. Please let now the phone I ring. Feel, now I yeah. feel
0: guilty all the times yeah. you treated Hardy's yeah. when we nah. were out. I owe you. Yeah. I owe you You'll Sizzler, say something at nice in my funeral. We'll be good. Oh, that's you know. all
1: you're invested in? I mean, I, I, it was amazing. <laughs> Verizon did let the phone ring. They didn't let me call out, but they let the phone ring, and I got two jobs that night off the TV show. So I'm a big believer in all your debt and all your failure it makes sense like 5 years later but at the time it's awful and I and I know there's people listening saying you know how do you let it get that bad when you got when you have kids and you have a wife well, we don't choose to let it get that bad. It just does get that bad. What we've done is we've got the tool sets and the mindset to get through it and to keep going.
0: Ronnie, it's yeah. a very yeah. emotional talk we're having here. You know, three guys the same age. You, Matt and I have talked about the the beauty and the hardship of being fathers and how our sons remind us of ourselves, mm-hmm. our past, our present, our future. How does this all jibe with the the, the kind of the... The machismo you had to learn in prison isn't it isn't it very strange like you, you went there you had to buck up as an eighteen year old and on the way out you you you're now being encouraged to really make yourself vulnerable, make yourself open uh, make yourself susceptible uh to to fear to anxiety talk about how you know panic attacks these are things that affect everybody from small business owners all the way up to silicon valley people and entrepreneurs and elon musk the founder of tesla when he thought his company was going to go under um how are you traversing all of this is it is it really not keeping you up at night
2: yes yeah, it's just keeping me up at night i have plenty of anxiety attacks i'm um, just worrying about like i said how i'm gonna pay my bills I'm worried about how people look at me and stuff like that. If if they going to judge me for my my crimes or you know things like that, right? But the crime so is
0: it's, not it's not like a scarlet letter. It's not written on your sleeve. Once you're the business owner, you're that, the business owner. It's not like they go online and they see you
2: on Mom, um, yeah, people do do that. How would they people how would they online. find that you're a criminal? I mean, look up your business. Under my business it says criminal record. And you can click on that and you know type my name in it and basically look at look at my record.
0: How do you get over yeah. that when you're cold calling for business? It's because <laughs> yes. some people, Matt was open-minded enough to say that you had so much at stake that you would not be a flight risk, that you would not burn him, that you had that one chance. Other people are much more prone to say, well, why why, why hire you? I can go hire a person who's bonded who brings a bunch of uh, day laborers from Central America to do it. I mean, so you'd have to have really open-minded people out there to say that yeah, actually – Paradoxically, as a contrarian person, I think you're gonna you're gonna try harder, like Avis, because you've come from a harder place. I do,
2: I do try harder. You know, it's in me to work hard, anyway. It's in me, you know, to be a good person. You know, it's in me to to look out for other people. You know, too. So, you know, I mean, it's 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 a natural thing. It's just I need people to, you know, look at the the good side of me instead of looking at what happened, you know, 20 years ago. You know, that's basically all I need.
1: You heard Ronnie say a word earlier that made me proud. He said, I want to build my brand. And I don't think you hear a lot of guys that did 20 years in the system talk about their brand. We taught Ronnie very early. No one is going to give you a chance. Everybody is going to hate you. You are the lowest person in America. Let's be honest. He's a young black male that's done 20 years. Nobody's going to look at him in a positive way. Most people are going to get to the other side of the street when they see him. And we're asking them to hire, hire them. And we taught him, you got to embrace your failures. And the same thing I did. I mean, I was an idiot until I started talking about how much I failed. And so we've really encouraged Ronnie to don't hide your past. Embrace it, man. I mean, that's what makes you different than other people. And so from a branding perspective, we've really encouraged him to be blatantly obvious and blatantly open. We call it brutal honesty and really throw it out there so it's not something you're hiding. You just say, look, this is what I did. This is who I am. I'm going to work my butt off for you.
0: I call it what you practice: radical transparency. Within yeah. two minutes of you and I meeting at our son's preschool open house in 2012, you told me that uh, you were you were almost left for dead in a ditch in Vegas, and I said, "Wow, this this guy's either psychotic or he's refreshingly transparent." Probably and both. the more yeah. the more we <laughs> talked about it, I was yeah. like, w- w- "It's really endearing." And you were talking to a journalist, right? Someone who could say, I-, "I can't believe this." You know, a bunch of people recognize you in the preschool as the guy from Hoarders, as that celebrity, but. You, um, almost in a self-flagellating, masochistic way, tell people where you failed and where you're still failing, and you wear that failure as a badge of honor.
1: Yeah, my dad taught me very early. When I was 16, he came to me and he said, you will never be the smartest, you'll never be the best looking, you're never going to be the strongest, you're never going to be the richest. And at 40, that's an awesome message. At 16, that's not a very good message to hear. But he was right. He was absolutely right. All I got is hard work and a little bit of humor. And so I learned very early in college, I learned I had to stick out. How do I stick out? I had to be different than everybody else. Not weird different, not crazy different, but different. And so I make sure I'm, I blatantly point out how I'm different than everybody. That's my sales. And, and so that's, that's I'd be different, and then i help people. If you do those two things, you don't have to advertise. Really, the third part would be great hard work. And I think that's one thing people, we really haven't talked about. Ronnie also does an amazing job every time. Do you prospect much at all, or do you get all? is it all referrals? Both. Yeah. It's both. I mean, we, we refer him out to everybody. I mean, we have people that used to be scared of him, and now they hire him two, yeah. three times a week. Two three <laughs> how, times important, a week yeah. how
0: important is that word of mouth kind of validation? We're in the Yelp economy or the Angie's List economy where mm-hmm. people can just go in there, and that makes or breaks you. That's also another thing you have to learn coming out of prison True. in 2011, right? Yeah, exactly. It's not a matter of anybody picking up the phone book anymore. If yeah. you want to do this, you have to be— Internet savvy uh, in a town like this, word gets around very easily, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm.
2: It does. I mean, the Internet is its still something I'm learning. I mean, basically, I just get out there from, you know, and um, do it from mouth to mouth. And this guy right here, he gets me a lot of jobs, you know.
1: Yeah, but you keep and, them. I give yeah, you a chance, keep, yeah. and then you keep the jobs, and they call you after that. Yeah,
2: once I, you know, once I get the job and the people are able to meet me, the client is able to meet me and stuff like that, I mean— so then, you know, they always hire me back. They always hire me
0: back. But you are, you, as you told me, you're very nervous going into these meetings. You're very self-conscious, oh, yeah, and you wanna, make, you wanna make the good impression. You wanna, you wanna say, listen, take a flyer on me. This is an intensely competitive economy right now where a lot of people are underemployed, and a lot of people are vying for the same gigs that you are. You're competing against many undocumented workers um, that are out there that would do it for less, Necessarily, and now you do this with the burden of having employees. So, uh, what is the case you're making? Like, if I give you a 30 second pitch, or if you meet someone uh, who's who's like in an elevator with you, what would you tell them?
2: I'd say I'm a small businessman. I'm a hard worker. Just give me one chance, and and I'll prove myself.
0: Tell us about your first BNI meeting.
2: Oh, business networking internationally.
0: Yeah, how did you go? How would you get the idea? What did you
2: wear? An agent um set me up with with um the meeting and. It's a nervous experience because you are in, you're in the meeting with a whole bunch of other small business partners and stuff like that, right? And it's a humbling experience. Where was it? You Where have, was it? Was it a hotel, a restaurant? Mm, hotels, restaurants, different places. You know, they have the meetings every month at, you know, a different location.
0: And you walk in with your business
2: card? You walk in with your Brochure? business cards. You, work, you walk in with your, um, your flyers and you sit at a round table and everyone gets up and present their business.
1: And I think about this. This is normal. This is like a Tuesday morning for me. It's no big deal. But you think about someone like Ronnie, and we hadn't thought about it until he came to us. He was really nervous. He's like, what do I do? What do I say? What do I wear? How do I do this? And he walked in, and I thought about it. I mean, think about doing 20 years, and all of a sudden, you're with a bunch of peers that you assume are going to look down on you, yeah, exactly. and you're asking them to give you business. And did you even have, I think you had to go get business cards... No, I had. I had yeah, we coach. were trying to. We yeah. were trying to convince you to wear a tux, but he yeah. wouldn't do it. <laughs> I mean, we. It was just very. When I take myself out of my situation, my dad raised me, man. From from age ten on, I was learning how to sell, and Ronnie's learning now at forty. Man, yeah, at forty. Did you
2: have
0: any models growing up? Any positive models?
2: Yeah, my mom. You know, but as, far as a father, I didn't have. You know, I didn't have that father figure, anything like that. So basically, everything that you know, I, I've learned, I have, I've had to learn on my own.
0: When you were 15 no. or, say, when you were in junior high school, what did you think you were going to do? Do you remember? Mm.
2: I mean, I know I wanted to be successful. You know, I can't recall exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to live the American dream, graduate, then go to college and, you know, go on from there.
1: Let's be honest. At 18, what were your options? <laughs> be honest.
2: Prison Yeah.
0: Or, or death, basically.
2: Prison or death. Those, those were my only options then.
0: So you measure everything right now, as hard or as embarrassing as some of these situations are, against where you were, or the, the fact that you have to give up 20 years of your life and be on the inside.
2: That 20 years saved me, though. How so? I feel it saved it saved my life. It taught me a lot. You know, a lot I had I had to learn on my own because, you know, while you are in prison, you have to basically stay to yourself. You can't make too many friends. You can't be that social. You know, so I'm I'm used to being like a what you call an introvert. You know, I'm, I'm usually being to myself. So now that I'm out and, you know, I'm, I'm, I have to be social to everyone is it's, it's, it's kind of it's hard sometimes, you know, because I'm not used to, you know, giving up information on myself and stuff, sure. and stuff like that.
0: Have you had any moment uh, that you remember or any series of moments where you're in your car and you're like, damn, this is finally OK,
2: or I can see light at the end of the tunnel
0: or is it constantly a hustle?
2: It's constantly a hustle, but I do have, have those moments, too. Like yeah, I'm at the end of the time. I'm, I'm I'm happy. I'm out. You know, I'm doing good for myself, and and I'm going to continue to do this good for myself. And do you want to start that's a family? My, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I need to start soon too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting old, man. <laughs>
0: yeah, you don't have to worry about menopause anytime soon. Uh, but that's neither here nor yeah. there. <laughs> We were exchanging candor about some things that you typically wouldn't hear on a quote-unquote business or economics show or podcast. But I think that the lessons here are universal. And you see these things in business magazines. You could see the cover of Fortune or Business Week and Forbes about failure, and I cherish my failures. And if you read the biographies of, of famous people – or the personal torments, or the personal episodes and tragedies that they all had to get past somehow. I think it, in the end, it, it, it is inspiring that we're all kind of in the same boat together. And that I, I think that it's inspiring that you two found empathy. And it's something that you now, Ronnie, are, are looking to pass on to other employees. And, and people will look back and say, wow, he gave me a chance. So, yeah.
1: And what I love is Ronnie will look back in five years and laugh at where he is now and <laughs> say, man, how – how naive I was, how small business I was. But I think everyone listening should remember that, man. We all, you know, yeah, I'd love to be Bill Gates on the cover of Forbes. But right now, I can't even get in the magazine. I'm just a dude. I'm cleaning up the magazines. But it is about the hustle. And I love, like you just said, we're all in that hustle. And that hustle lasts 15 years. That Forbes magazine is the last day of 15 years. And you got to work 14 years, 364 days on that hustle. And that's what a lot of us forget. It's all about the hustle. All three of us, totally different people. I mean, you were in Ivy League schools when he was in prison, and I was living in a casino. Three totally different dudes, but we're right in the middle of that same hustle, and hopefully one of us will end up on the Forbes magazine.
0: And I couldn't end it any better than that. Full disclosure, we'll see you next week. Our program today was recorded at Audio Image Recording in Richmond, Virginia. Our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to the Martin Agency and Virginia Commonwealth University for their support. Check out our website at FullDisclosureRadio.com and on Twitter at FullDRadio. The executive producer of Full Disclosure is Jeffrey Bennett. I'm Robin Farzad.